is always uh, a joy uh, to get to sing uh, with God's people uh, and praise and exalt uh, our great God for who he is and all that he has done. Amen. Well, uh, we are going to continue uh, in our study of John. You can uh, turn with me to the beginning of John chapter 8. And while you're, you're turning there, my first couple of years uh, in college, uh, before I uh, was a believer, I remember uh, doubting Christianity and uh, criticizing a Christian for believing the Bible. At that point in time, uh, in my skepticism uh, and with my limited understanding of, of history, uh, I thought that you know, during the, the Dark Ages, uh, when very few people could, could read or write, uh, and when uh, you know, there weren't too many copies of Scripture, and any copies that were made were, were hand-copied. Uh, and in my doubt, I said, so how, how do we know that, that some monk in the 800s didn't just change what the Bible said? Right? Or if he made an, an error... We would never know, and then we would be doomed to uh, play the long game of telephone uh, and build upon the, the copying errors or the, the changes that some random scribe made uh, in Italy uh, a thousand years ago. Uh, and so I had all of these doubts uh, concerning the, the trustworthiness of Scripture. And uh, what was amazing is that when I, when I began to to read the Bible for myself, uh, I began to, to see uh, the truth claims of Christ. Uh, and what, what was amazing is I, I still had all of those questions, but, but I began to believe in Christ anyways. I, I trusted who He claimed to be and what He accomplished for me. Uh, but those questions lingered in the back of my mind of how can we trust the Bible? Well, uh, I, I loved seminary because it answered all of those questions. Uh, and when I got to seminary, I learned that uh, rather than having just a, a few manuscripts that we don't really know uh, where they came from or if they were trustworthy, we have thousands of manuscripts uh, from the New Testament. Uh, and those thousands of copies uh, of different portions of the New Testament allow us uh, to compare and to contrast. Uh, and we have uh, manuscripts that go way back. We don't have any of the original manuscripts, uh, but we have copies of them uh, that get really close to the originals. Uh, and we are able to see uh, errors in terms of human errors uh, of a copying of, oh, they they said this rather than that. They said Jesus rather than Jesus Christ. And those are usually the types of things uh, that, that creep into uh, the Bible. Uh, small copying errors, and they're kind of reading in uh, a similar passage or a similar wording elsewhere uh, in Scripture. But because we have so many uh, manuscripts uh, in the, the Greek, we are able to easily see uh, and identify any human errors uh, in uh, the, the, the original or the, uh, the Greek manuscripts. And when I speak of, of errors, uh, I am not saying that the Bible that you hold in your hand uh, contains errors or inconsistencies. No, the, the Word of God uh, is living and active. Uh, the Word of God uh, in all of its entirety is breathed out 
uh, by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Uh, the, the Bible is the inspired word of God, and it is without uh, error in all that it says. Uh, and so I don't want you to, to begin to, to doubt, well, can I trust anything in here? Uh, and the, the reason I'm, I'm bringing all of this up is the, the passage that we're going to, to study here at the beginning of John 8 it is more than likely uh, something that was not originally written by John the Apostle. Uh, it, it is more than likely something that was uh, added in later on. Uh, and we know this because the earliest uh, and best manuscripts uh, in the Greek uh, show that, that this wasn't there. Uh, and if you, if you look in your Bible, whether you have the NASB or the, the ESV or something else, you, most English translations uh, will bracket this portion of Scripture from the end of John chapter 7, uh, verse 53, uh, all the way through uh, chapter 8, verse 11. You, got, you guys all see that in your, uh, in your Bibles again? And, and that is the way that it is marked uh, in uh, many old manuscripts as well. There is an, an asterisk next to it because... Uh, the, the scribe uh, felt that it was not uh, in the original. Again, that was passed on. Uh, the, the, the earliest manuscripts that we have that contain uh, this uh, story are from the 5th the century. Okay, prior to that, uh, this is not in John's Gospel, but it suddenly appears in the 5th century. Uh, and there's no pastor or church father, no theologian who even comments or cite this passage uh, prior to the 10th century. Okay, so, so we're dealing with uh, something uh, this morning that was probably added in later during medieval times. Uh, and also, uh, this passage is added in in multiple different locations, uh, which shows us that uh, the, the scribes or those who were, were copying didn't really know where to put this or what to do with it. They didn't want to get rid of it completely because they felt it was valuable. And it's more than likely uh, a true account uh, that was passed on orally uh, throughout the church. Uh, but uh, some, t- some manuscripts place this story after verse 36 in John chapter 7. Okay, just before uh, the last day of the feast begins on, in verse 37. Other manuscripts place it uh, right after verse 44. Uh, before the officers uh, returned to the chief priests and the Pharisees. Uh, other manuscripts put it at the very end of John's gospel, uh, and still other manuscripts put it uh, in Luke's gospel, uh, right after Jesus arrives uh, in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, and so uh, the variety of locations of this goes to show that, again, uh, this is uh, probably added. Additionally, the language and the grammar used in this passage is very different from everything else around it. And having worked in the Greek this week, I'm like, yeah, this is way different in terms of the way uh, sentences are structured and what types of uh, verbs are used and all of that. Uh, and uh, there are not too many passages like this in the New Testament, meaning that, uh, that, that the earliest and best manuscripts that show that uh, this was not a part of the original. But we've already encountered one of these passages in the Gospel of John. Uh, it was actually just a single verse back in John chapter 5. Uh, if, you, if you look there, John chapter 5, uh, verse 4. Uh, if it's not, the ESV doesn't put it in the main text, but it puts it as a footnote. Again, you see uh, there's just a single verse where they said this is probably not in the original. Uh, but then there's another similar circumstance with the ending of Mark's gospel, uh, where uh, the, the be- earliest and best 
Greek manuscripts don't have uh, Mark's gospel, uh, the end of it. Uh, in, if you turn to Mark chapter 16, now you'll see something similar bracketed. Uh, so the, the original of Mark's gospel ends at verse 8. Uh, but there are then verses 9 through uh, 20 that were probably added later. And again, similar to this situation, of the, it's, the order is transposed and it's in different places. Uh, and it's not seen until much later uh, in church history. Uh, and so uh, a good question to ask is, what do we do with these types of passages? Right, that, are, that are clearly marked, and as we, again, we have this broad manuscript evidence, and we say, hey, we, this is probably not written by the apostles, and it's, so it's probably something uh, added later, and we can easily identify it. So what do we do with these passages? Well, they are included in the Bible, and we study them, but we must be careful not to build any theology, any doctrines on uh, these passages alone. Okay, so when uh, the truths that these passages teach uh, are also taught elsewhere in Scripture, uh, we can believe those truths and apply those truths. But if there is a, uh, a certain principle or doctrine that is only found in one of these passages that is questionable, we should be cautious uh, in uh, building uh, a theology upon that. So take, for instance, if you're still there in, in Mark, Uh, Mark chapter 16, if you look at verses 17 and 18, it says, These signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons, and they will speak in new tongues, and they will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them, and they will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now, there's nowhere else in Scripture that it says that you can handle poisonous snakes, and if you get bit, you're going to be just fine. So that's one of those examples I would say, oh, it's probably not something that you want to practice. Don't go and drink poison when you go home today. Uh, because again, that's not taught elsewhere, anywhere else in Scripture. So we don't want to build our theology on one of these passages uh, alone. Right? Uh, so then going back to the Gospel of John, how do we study and interpret this particular passage at the end of John 7? Uh, in the beginning of John 8. Well, as, as I said before, uh, throughout the, the entirety of church history, while, while the church has said this was probably something that was added in later, the church has always believed that this is a true event in the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, this has always been accepted uh, as being true, uh, but it's not accepted as being taking place right here in the middle of the Feast of Booths that we've been looking at in, in John chapter 7 and chapter 8. Uh, and uh, as, we, as we study this, since we don't know that the bigger context, uh, we're going to study this kind of as a, as a standalone event in the life of Christ. Uh, and what's amazing is that despite uh, the textual background of this passage, this is one of the most well-known and beloved passages in the Gospel of John and in the New Testament, right? Uh, this is often referenced even by unbelievers. Uh, and so we're going to look at it today. Uh, And let's read it together. So beginning in uh, chapter 7, verse 53, and we're going to read through chapter 8, verse 11. It says, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, 
this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, or in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Father, please grant us wisdom as we study this passage. Help us to see the truths in this passage that are echoed throughout your written word. Help us to apply those truths to our heads, our hearts, our hands, so that we might glorify you and live harmoniously with others for your glory. Lead us and guide us now as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we, as we read this passage, we, we see that, that the Jewish leaders are testing Jesus in an attempt to, to trap him in a difficult situation. So this is going to be a test of Jesus' wisdom and his judgment. What is he going to do? And while you and I do not face this exact test, we do have people who are constantly watching, poking, probing, questioning us, trying to get us to misstep, trying to, to get us to say something that could be offensive to someone else. So, so looking at this, uh, we will see how are we to judge with wisdom and righteousness? How do we look at circumstances and situations and come to a, uh, a right uh, and accurate conclusion? And how do we navigate these questions and testings that come at us from so many directions? Well, what we're going to see in this passage are four principles that will help us to judge circumstances with wisdom and righteousness. And the first of these principles is seen in uh, chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 2. What we see is that circumstances tempt us to judge unrighteously. Circumstances tempt us to judge unrighteously. And it's important to to understand some of the background and the setting here. Uh, If uh, we're to understand uh, this uh, the seriousness of this decision that Jesus is facing in this predicament that he is being placed in by the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, uh, these verses tell us that Jesus is there sitting in the temple uh, and he is teaching. There is a growing crowd of people who are coming to them uh, uh, in the morning uh, and he is there teaching them. And then uh, when this, these religious leaders come and, and they present this woman uh, in the middle of the crowd, uh, and, and place her in front of Jesus. Uh, and think about that. The, the pressure is going to mount. Okay, Jesus is there teaching. Suddenly he, this woman is uh, placed before him. And 
the leaders are saying, here's the situation. What do you say? What's your verdict, Jesus? And so on the, there's one part of, the, of pressure that is coming from uh, the Jewish crowd waiting to see because the, the leaders say, well, here's what Moses says. What are you going to say, Jesus? So all of the Jews there are thinking, yeah, what is he going to say? What's he going to choose? But, but there's another pressure lingering here, and it's not explicitly stated, but if we were to go and visit the temple in Jesus' time, we would, we would see another layer of pressure to this. All of this is taking place in the temple, uh, and I have a, a slide. Uh, I don't do this much, but it's helpful to, to visualize. This is a, a picture of the Temple Mount uh, as it would have appeared uh, in the time of Christ. And so uh, the temple was enormous. It's 35 acres, okay? Uh, and it's surrounded on three sides uh, by these large walls. And on the top of the walls, you see there are uh, th- these uh, walkways on the walls. And if you see at the very top of the picture... There is a Roman fortress connected to the walls. Uh, And uh, the the first century historian Josephus says that uh, during the the Jewish feasts, the Roman soldiers from that Roman fortress would come out and they would patrol the walls and they would walk among the crowd to make sure that the Jews weren't planning anything. Because if there was going to be a revolt uh, in Jerusalem, where would it take place? here in the temple. So with with the question that's going to be presented to Jesus, uh, it's going to be a loaded question. Uh, The scribes and the Pharisees are trying to put Jesus in a situation where no matter how he answers, he's going to get in trouble with someone. Uh, And so the the situation on one hand, you have uh, the, the Jews there, and then the other hand, you have the Romans. And so if Jesus says, yes, she should be stoned, the leaders would then accuse him of going against Caesar, of breaking Roman law, because according to Roman law, uh, the Jews were not allowed to execute anybody. Uh, But then if Jesus says, no, let there be mercy uh, and don't stone her, then the Jewish leaders would turn around and say, ah, but you're going against Moses. It's a catch-22, right? And if Jesus punts, if he does nothing, it may well be that this woman is stoned. Because you have the the Jewish leaders coming in, saying that they have caught her in the very act of adultery, accusing her. You have a crowd of people there. And all of this is a trap. It's a situation similar to the trap set by the religious leaders in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, when they come to Jesus and say, uh, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Again, putting... Jesus in a situation, hey, either choose Moses or choose Caesar. And no matter what he chooses, he's going to be in trouble with somebody else. So they wanted to put Jesus in this position. But it also creates a predicament, a tension between the love of God and the justice of God. Right? His love and his holiness. Right? And Jesus has a track record of being a friend to sinners, of being merciful and compassionate. So this is also putting Jesus in a situation, testing him. What would he do when confronted with clear sin? How would he respond? How would he evaluate this situation? What would his verdict be? 
So he's pressed into these circumstances where it seems like there's no right answer. That whatever answer he gives, there's going to be trouble. And sometimes you and I feel like we are placed in those exact same circumstances, right? Uh, that we are asked a loaded question of, okay, how do I, how do I answer this without offending? How, how do I uh, give a response uh, without giving in to the temptation and, and the pressure that we oftentimes feel that when we're in these types of circumstances, we are tempted to pervert justice. That we are tempted to, to judge unrighteously. We, we do a, a running catalog in our minds of, okay, what can I say that's going to get me out of trouble? Right? That, that's the temptation that we face. But that's not wise and righteous judgment. We must never allow that the pressure of circumstances to tempt us to pervert ju- judgment or justice. And Jesus never succumbed to such temptations, but he was tested on a regular basis, way more than you and I are tested. And yet he always proved faithful. Circumstances tempt us to judge unrighteously. That's this first principle that we must keep in mind if we're going to judge wisely and righteously. But then the, there's a second principle in Verses 3 through the beginning of chapter, or verse 6. And the principle is, is this, that pride tempts us to judge harshly. Pride tempts us to judge harshly. If you look with me at those verses again. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, or the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Again, think of that. Of the situation that was immediately thrust upon Jesus. And the, the, the scribes and the, the Pharisees come uh, and they present this, in essence, this court case to Jesus as the judge and say, what do you say? And pitting uh, Jesus against Roman law, pitting him against Moses. Jesus, what are you going to do? But, but there's several problems uh, with this case that they bring forward because they say this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. And in Jewish law, you couldn't be charged with adultery unless there was proof. Uh, multiple witnesses uh, seeing the act taking place, not just, well, I have this suspicion. Uh, and so then the big question looming, if, if, they, if she was caught in the act, where's the man? Right? And so the, the absence of the man here indicates that either he was not arrested, not pursued, that he might have been just let go. The religious leaders didn't need the man to be a part of this. They just brought the woman. They wanted to shame and embarrass her. Think about how intentional this is that they publicly shamed this woman. Bringing her to Jesus in the presence of this big crowd and coming and placing her in front of everybody. Right? They could have left her off to the side. They could have said, hey Jesus, can you, can you come talk to me for a second? We have this really hard situation. Can you, can you give me some wisdom? And the scriptures say... That in the law of Moses, when adultery has been committed, that both the man and the woman are guilty. But the leaders here are not really concerned with the law. They're not really concerned with 
with right judgment. As it says at the beginning of verse 6, what are they most concerned with? They're most concerned with testing Jesus. I've been uh, recently teaching uh, my sons uh, the pieces on a chessboard uh, to, to set them up, uh, teaching them the names. And uh, the most common piece on a, a chessboard is a pawn. Right? And as you, as you execute your strategy in chess, you're going to sacrifice pawns. You are going to use them to accomplish your purposes. And when you, when you lose a pawn in the game, you're not going to fret. You're not going to worry. And, and the religious leaders here are treating this woman like a pawn. They are treating her as, as a piece to be sacrificed in their uh, greater goals, in their, in their bigger ambitions. They were not concerned with justice or with holiness. And they were only interested in testing Jesus. They set themselves against him. And in their pride, they viewed everyone else as a pawn to be used and abused by them as they pursued their own goal. These are proud men who've set themselves up above all others. And that is exactly what pride does. Pride elevates us and it lowers everyone else, including God. The Puritan Andrew Jones says it this way, that pride sets men in opposition against God. In other sins, men run away from God, but pride is a coming against God. And so it's no wonder that these men, these religious leaders are setting themselves up against Christ so clearly, so publicly, and they're willing to run over anybody and everybody else in the process. Especially this woman. And, and it's easy for us even just to, to read this, and as we're reading this, we tend to exalt ourselves over the religious leaders. And we, we look at them and say, man, I would never do something like that. Shame on them. But pride exists in every heart here. It is within each and every one of us, and we are all guilty of that same pride. And to one degree or another, we will exalt ourselves over others. And you say, well, how do we do that? Well, by magnifying the sins of others and minimizing our own sins. Right? Someone commits a sin against me, what do I do? I rehearse it. I recount it in detail. I pray slightly imprecatory prayers against that person until the Lord works in my heart. Right? We, we, uh, we get upset. But if we commit that same exact sin, how do we feel? Oh, let there be grace. Let there be mercy. Compassion. We, we minimize our sin and we magnify the sins of others. Right? We, we judge others harshly and ourselves lightly. Additionally, we, we elevate ourselves by thinking that we would never commit the same sins as other people. Right? It's the, the parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. What was the Pharisee's prayer? Comparing himself and saying, God, thank you for not making me like these other sinners. Thank you for elevating me above them. It's that same pride 
that is present within each and every one of us. Proverbs 16.5 says this, though, that everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. And be assured that he will not go unpunished. And so what we see here is that Jesus is, is teaching in the temple and this woman is brought in, publicly shamed, brought forward to the very front and, and the Pharisees say, well, what do you say, Jesus? What is your verdict? So how is Jesus going to deal with these arrogant and accusatory men? How is he going to respond? How is he going to walk this fine line uh, and not answer in a way that's going to set himself against the law of Moses? How is he going to respond so that he doesn't uh, rebel against uh, the Roman law? How is he going to respond so that he walks that fine line between justice and love, compassion, mercy, and judgment? How is he going to respond? We're going to see that in the second half of verse 6 through the end of verse 9. We're going to see this third principle for judging righteously. We've seen that circumstances tempt us to judge unrighteously. Pride tempts us to judge harshly. But then we see that Christ teaches us to examine ourselves before judging. If you look with me at the second half of verse 6, that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And the, the, the pressure is escalating and Jesus does something very unexpected. Right? He, he stoops down and, and starts to, to write or draw in the dirt. Uh, and this is, a, this is an amazing picture here. Okay? We're told in verse 7 that uh, the Jewish leaders kept on asking him, so if you, if you imagine this crowd uh, that, that's there with Jesus, with the woman, with the leaders, I think the crowd is silent, just waiting uh, for what Jesus is going to, to say. The, the religious leaders are there repeatedly saying over and over again, so what do you say? The law of Moses is this. What do you tell us, Jesus? They keep saying that. And then I think the, the, the woman is still standing there. Clothes disheveled, tears in her eyes, waiting to hear what Jesus is going to say about her sin that's been exposed. And Jesus bends down and, and he writes in the dirt. And so because they, they continue to, to ask him, and again, the, the crowd's probably straining, whispering, what is he writing? What is he doing? Then Jesus stands up. And he makes a statement. He gives a, a qualification. He says, hey, she can be stoned. But then he gives a, a qualification to it. Let the person without sin be the one to cast the first stone. 
right? Jesus issues a, a qualification on the character. If you are going to stone this woman, this is what has to be true. But what is he really saying here? There's, there's a couple different options, a couple different ways of interpreting the words of Christ here. One option is that he is saying that a person must be completely without sin in order to judge this woman. Okay, so that, that's one option. Another option is that he is speaking about the particular sin of adultery. That, that if someone is going to, to stone this woman, they must themselves must not be guilty of adultery. Or as Jesus uh, spoke in Matthew chapter 5, even lusting in your heart. Another option is that Jesus is speaking about the current trial of this woman. And that in the way that they have conducted themselves, uh, they must be without sin. If they're going to, to execute her, if they're going to stone her, have they gone about it in the right way? And you can keep your finger here and turn back with me to, to Deuteronomy chapter uh, 17. A couple of passages on how j- justice was to be administered in Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 6 and 7 say this. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And then notice this. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So think about that. Why is it that the the two or three witnesses had to be the first ones to to throw the stone? Well, it it puts the the responsibility upon them. Are are they speaking truthfully and honestly? Because if you know that you are lying about this person in your accusation, are you going to be able to kill them? Are you going to be able to cast that stone? No. So with, with that in mind, but then there's also other passages that, that speak of this. Exodus chapter 23, verse 1 says, You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Exodus 23, verse 7. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. So what Jesus is, is challenging here. Is for the, the witnesses, whoever they, they were among the Jewish leaders, that they needed to be the ones to cast the, the first stone. It had to be the witnesses. But then, uh, among those three options of, hey, is Jesus saying that they had to be completely without sin? Is he saying that they had to be without the particular sin of adultery? Or is it, they saying that he had, they had to be uh, innocent in the matter of how this trial is being uh, brought forth? I think all three of those are an option, but... Uh, the, the bigger picture is this. Not necessarily what Jesus wrote on the ground, but what Jesus said. It says that when they heard this, that Jesus is, is bringing them, he's calling them to the point of self-examination. He said, hey, before you judge this woman, you examine yourself. You, you examine your own sin, your own lack of righteousness. Jesus is appealing to their conscience. And in doing this, he, he's quieting the, this mob of, of Jewish leaders. 
Right? They're, they're crying out for blood. They, they want to see this woman stoned. Right? And as, as we have seen this past year, mobs tend to get out of control. There is a, a boldness to mobs. Mobs create a lack of accountability, and people will do things when they're a part of a larger crowd that they would never do if they had to do it alone. And so this is Jesus in his infinite wisdom calming this whole situation down. Say, if you want to stone this woman, this crowd gathering, then these witnesses need to be the first ones to do it. And, And they need to be without sin themselves. They need to have a clear conscience about what they are doing before God that this is right. So Jesus is placing the responsibility firmly in the the witnesses. He's encouraging them to examine themselves first, to to see their own hypocrisy. And then he stoops back down and he writes in the dirt again. Like, Jesus, aren't you going to pay more attention? No, he just speaks a simple word. Hey, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And he goes back to writing. There's many questions about what Jesus wrote. We don't know. Some people have said he started writing the Ten Commandments. Some people say he might have been writing uh, Exodus 23.1 about malicious uh, witnesses. There's another passage in Deuteronomy 19 that says if you come and you accuse somebody of a crime and it's proved that they are innocent and that you are falsely accusing them, you receive the consequences that they would have received. That's how they dealt with false witnesses in Israel. There's a variety of, uh, of things that Jesus could have written, or he, maybe he just drew and, and let uh, their own consciences convict them. Because it says in verse 7, or ver- beginning of verse 8, he bent down once again and, and wrote on the ground, But when they had heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the the older ones. As we grow older and older, we have a a greater understanding of our own sinfulness, right? A greater understanding. We have a longer track record of sin. We see all of its ugliness. We see uh, all of the the repercussions. We've seen the harvest principle in action. When I sinned, this is what it brought forth. So the oldest among them begin to, to file away. And this is a, a parade of everybody leaving, departing, abandoning their accusations against this woman as they examine themselves first. And this is a key principle for us to keep in mind. Matthew chapter 7 Verses 1 through 5, as Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Judge not that you be not judged. That that tends to be the world's favorite verse of Jesus uh, at this time. But but the point there is not that we exercise no judgment, but uh, it continues. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck? That is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? 
You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Then Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. We have to be ready and willing to rightly judge our own thoughts, intentions, and actions. Uh, if we are willing to, to bring the Word of God upon our own motives and actions, then we are going to be rightly uh, able to, to judge the thoughts, intentions, and actions of others. Okay? Wise and righteous judgment requires that we, that we not allow circumstances to tempt us to judge unrighteously, nor our own pride to tempt us to judge harshly. But Christ teaches us to first examine ourselves. And then lastly, verses 10 and 11, we see that Christ's merciful judgment encourages our repentance. After all of the religious leaders filed away, while Jesus was still writing in the dirt, he stands up and he says, where are your accusers? Did did anyone condemn you? And she says, No. And then Jesus says, well, he was not going to condemn her either. But he also instructs the woman. He tells her to go, but he also commands her that from this time forth, she should no longer sin. And the tense of the Greek verb carries the idea of stopping an action that was in progress. You have been sitting up until this point in time, Now you abandon your life of sin. That's what he's calling her to do. And in saying this, Jesus is acknowledging that what she was doing was sin. He doesn't condone what she was doing, but he doesn't condemn her either. But he extends mercy and he calls her to repentance. He agrees with the law concerning what sin is, but then he removes the penalty that the law demands for her sin. And what, what, what a picture of the gospel. An illustration of what Christ does for us. That we are all guilty of sin, but He's removed the penalty for our sin. And this shows us how are we to interact with people in the world around us who struggle with sin? How do we interact with people in the church who struggle with sin? How do we uh, interact with our, our children, our neighbors, family members, when they're struggling with sin? When someone's sin is exposed, we're to respond with, with love and compassion. Right? Galatians 6, you who are spiritual, walking in the Spirit, restore such a one with gentleness. We make it clear that when sin is exposed, we, we don't condone sin. And we also need to make it clear that the Word of God condemns our sin. But we also tell people about the mercy that can be found if they look to Christ. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. 
says that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. His kindness, his patience. And I pray that we would put that kind of kindness on display in our own families, uh, in all of our relationships, uh, that we would demonstrate the kindness of God when sin is exposed, that we would lead people to repentance through our kindness. Mercy encourages the confession of sin, but harsh judgment encourages the concealment of sin. And we are ambassadors of a merciful Lord who is willing to forgive all if we look to Him in faith. We can come to Jesus with all of our sin, and if we trust in who He is and what He has done, He takes all of our sin, and in return, He gives us all of His righteousness so that we can stand before God holy and blameless. Again, what wisdom, beauty, and power is found in these events from the life of Christ? They they instruct us how to judge others with wisdom and righteousness. Knowing that circumstances can tempt us to judge unrighteously. Knowing that our pride can tempt us to judge harshly. Yet Christ calls us to examine ourselves before judging. And Christ models for us the merciful judgment that will encourage repentance. And here's one more thing to to think about uh, as we, we go from here and continue on our day. That each one of us here is just like this woman. In what way? Now, now your greatest sins are not proclaimed to everyone here. We're, We're all very thankful for that. But each one of us stands before Christ with our greatest sins exposed to Him. Jesus doesn't need someone else to come and give a report about us, about what we've done. He's fully aware. So we stand before Him exposed and all of our ugliness all of our sinfulness and we're we're awaiting his verdict and just as he told this woman go and sin no more what is jesus going to call us to do to turn from our life of sin and to turn to him in faith that is the call of the gospel whatever our sins were whatever our sins are We are called to abandon them, to forsake them, and follow Jesus. And however great our sins might be, there is no sin that cannot be forgiven by Christ. Again, think about that. Think of how severe this woman's sin was. She was caught in the act of adultery, exposed before all, shamed before all. And yet Jesus extends mercy to her. And, and what's amazing is that the story ends abruptly, right? The story ends w- with the woman standing there and Jesus standing there. And Jesus saying, go and sin no more. From this time forth, don't sin any longer. Now, now when, when Jesus spoke the truth, the religious leaders were deeply convicted and they left. But then the question kind of hangs out there. What is this woman going to do? How is she going to respond? And we're not told because I think we're supposed to wrestle with that. How how is she going to respond to what Jesus is saying? 
Is she going to be like the religious leaders and be convicted and yet leave and go back to all of her old ways? Or is she going to be like all of the other disciples who recognize their sin and approach Jesus in faith? Thankful for his grace and his mercy. And we're not told how this ends because we're supposed to, to wrestle with how she might have responded and we're supposed to wrestle with how we ourselves are going to respond. How will you, as an individual, respond to the wise, kind, and merciful Jesus that we see here? The, the offer of salvation stands. If anyone thirsts, come to Christ and drink and be satisfied. Look to him in faith, no longer trusting in yourself. Knowing all of your sin is exposed before him. And the, the best thing to do is say, yeah, I, Lord, I need your forgiveness. I need your mercy for all of these sins. And now I want to follow you in faith. Each one of us has to answer that question that this woman faced. How is she going to respond? to the merciful and righteous judge that we see in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are...